Good morning, everyone. Happy Father's Day. Um, my message comes out of Joshua. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Joshua. We'll be in chapter 5 for the most part. It's not a very long section. Uh, a couple months ago, I, we, we took a look at Joshua chapter 1 when Joshua is told to be strong and courageous, to not be terrified, to not be discouraged, and to go wherever God would call him, knowing that God goes with him. That was where we kind of left off and took a look at him entering into the promised land. And here today, we're going to take a look at strength and humility and the courage to follow, because Joshua uh, is a man's man in a way. So, you know, as far as like Father's Day sermons go, he pretty much fits the bill. But there is so much more to Joshua's life than just being a tough guy. So if you would open your Bibles to chapter 5 and close your eyes with me now. Once you do that, we'll pray. Open with prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you that you are our Lord, that we don't go anywhere without you. Uh, help us to trust in that reality and to allow that truth to sink deeply into our hearts. Uh, I thank you, Lord, for Joshua's life and more importantly, Lord, for your work in his life. Help us to see what you want us to see this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, there is a, a very famous man, and his name is Edmund Hillary. Sir Edmund Hillary. Uh, if you can gauge from the picture, does anyone know what he is famous for? Yeah, he was the first person to summit Mount Everest. And he became a modern hero overnight. Uh, he and his Sherpa guide, which is the guy there to the, my left, uh, summited Mount Everest and became world famous overnight. And one of the, the neat things about him is he was, he's also famous for being humble. Now, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which isn't normally known for giving like character references or declarations, here is what the, the Encyclopedia Britannica said about Edmund Hillary. Hillary never anticipated the acclaim that would follow the historic ascent. Throughout his life, he maintained a high level of humility, and his main interest came to be the welfare of the Himalayan people who helped get him up. Um, and so he is known for, by Encyclopedia Britannica for being a humble person, right? That's a, that's a weird trait. But one of the stories I love about him that demonstrates this humility very succinctly uh, is he made regular visits back to the Himalayas and back to the foot of the, of the mountain. And he would, he would just you know, see who's going to be climbing it and who's hiking, and he would just show up. Uh, and he was, again, famous in his own lifetime. And so everyone who knew anything about adventuring or mountain climbing knew Edmund Hillary. Uh, but as the story goes, uh, a group of young people saw him and were like, Edmund, would you take, or probably Sir Hillary, would you take a picture with us? And he's like, sure. So he gets gathered, and they, you know, this is before the, the smartphone. So they had to get the camera situated. And one of the guys gives him like a, a hiking axe, something that would look like this, um, to help like, complete the picture. And he's just holding the axe. Well, this other young guy walks over and says, I'm sorry, you're holding it wrong. Let me help you. And then he, he, he then, to the amazement of the entire crowd, seeks to reposition the, the hiking axe in Hillary's hands while the rest of the people are like, do you know who you're talking to? And then the guy's like, okay, that's good. And then he walks off. And this is the amazing thing. Edmund Hillary proceeds to thank him, smile for the photo, and moves on with life. This man, who was the first person to climb Everest, takes this flippant correction from this person. I just want you to notice two things here. One, no matter how good of a climber that first guy was, his arrogance instantly lowers our opinion of him in our minds. Like, he could, he could be the next one to make it up Everest, but we instantly think of him as, as less notable because of his obvious arrogance and pride here. And Edmund Hillary, because of his humility, we think of him higher because of that reality. 
most of us are like, wow, you know, if you were in that position to be the best or the first and some nobody comes along to correct you, how many of us would just take it and go along with the photo? But he did because he did not think of himself. And so this trait of humility uh, is one of those things that elevates us and becomes a super important attribute for every one of us in here, whether you're a father or not. And so when it comes to pursuing the Lord, for all of us dads, without humility, strength can become dominance. Courage can become obstinance. Strengths that we possess without humility become destructive. And that's the, the big emphasis I want us to kind of walk away here with. Humility is necessary for life. Without it, the very good things that God would give us would become negative things in our lives. And one of the things we're going to see here is that Joshua had a lot of things he could have been very proud in or could have trusted in, um, but he is not going to be that way. So we're going to see a couple things about him right off the bat. Before we even get to chapter 5, obviously there's a few chapters before, and there's three basic things that have happened up to chapter 5. The first is the way of his humble strength, is he seeks to obey the Lord in every single area. Now the most obvious way that he obeys is that he's, you know, he's going to walk through the Jordan on dry ground, many of you know that story, at flood levels. Um, the Ark of the Covenant walks in and the floodwaters do one of these numbers, and it's a repeat of what happened with Moses in the Red Sea. And so he seeks to obey the Lord there. So God tells him, walk into the Jordan River at flood level, and Joshua obeys instantaneously. But there's two other lesser known things that he does that are obedient to God that don't necessarily make very much sense to us. All right, so after they cross into the Jordan River, two more things are said to be, or God commands the Jews to do. The first is that manna is done. So for 40 years, they have been walking in the wilderness, being fed this whole entire generation has never known hunger, has always known an instant meal outside of their tent. And after they celebrate the Passover in the promised land, God tells them, no more manna. Now this is before they have land, this is before they have their farm set up, this is before any of that. And now they have to walk in obedience and trust that God is gonna provide them food, even though they have nothing really, as far as their eyes would tell them, how they're ever gonna eat. That's the first step, or the, the second major act of obedience that Joshua follows through on. The second one is this entire generation is going to be circumcised in the promised land. Now, that is not such a big thing until you think about two things. One, we're not talking eight-day-old babies, which would be the norm from this point on. We're talking all the fighting men. And there is a fairly dark story in Genesis chapter 34 where two of Jacob's sons wipe out an entire town because they had participated in circumcision three days before. They were so incapacitated that two men with a sword were able to wipe them all out. Okay, now here's the thing. Where are the Israelites right now? They are across the river, in the promised land, surrounded by enemies on the doorstep of Jericho. And God commands them, circumcise all the men in the middle of enemy territory. And you will be incapacitated for who knows how long, at least a week and a half to two weeks. And here's the thing. Every single one of them does. And so this, this obedience to God, no matter what the request, is already the groundwork for Joshua's life. And so he is on the edge of Jericho. And this is where chapter 5 comes into play here. This is where we're going to see that no matter what God asks Joshua to do, he's going to obey because he trusts God. So chapter 5, it's a very short story. Uh, the circumcision at Gilgal we just talked about. If you take a look at verse 13, here's where we're going to read today. Uh, actually, I forgot to do this. If we would stand for the reading of God's word, I think that's a thing we're trying to do. Or drop your water bottle at the reading of God's word. That also works. 
All right, if you would stand and read with me, here is, here is the NIV's translation. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You may be seated. Thus saith the Lord. This text is, it's, it's like a little nugget right in the middle of Joshua. It's one of those kind of things you could easily overlook, but I, I think it's safe to say that this is the key to Joshua's entire success and victory. It's going to come out of this moment right here in time. So here's the first thing. He's, he's out seemingly looking at these walls. Uh, God has not told him what to do next. He's told him to you know, do the Passover do the circumcision. And now he's just waiting. So he's got these two million people sitting outside of a fortified city. And this is how most scholars think that Jericho could have looked. It probably had two walls. The first wall would have been as tall as our gym, maybe a little taller. And as most of you know, like we talked about last time, Rahab lived in the walls. So we're talking walls at least 20 feet thick and 25 feet high and quite possibly two sets of walls side by side. To, to invade this place is a mystery. Now, Joshua is standing here with his two million people, and he has seen God do some pretty amazing things. But I want you to think about this. He has no idea what to do. He has two million people that have followed him across a river that is now back to flood level. He cannot retreat. He has to move forward. And so the Bible tells us here that he is out looking near Jericho. Now, as a good general, here's what I'm thinking he's doing. He's trying to figure out his next, his next step. Like, how do, we, how do we go up against this? He doesn't know. And, the, and I want to speculate for a second. If you were in his position, would you be tempted to be looking at the walls versus the God who brought you this far? Right? For some of us, we would be tempted to be looking at the walls, trying to find the weakness. But have you ever found this to be true, that the more you look at the walls, the bigger they become? The more you think about how depressed you are, the more depressed you become. The more you try to overcome a certain sin, the more you think about the sin that seems to have root in your life, the more powerful that sin becomes. Has that, has that happened to anyone in, there, in here besides me, right? The more we think about the issue, the issue actually gets bigger. We're discontent with something, and the more we think about our discontentment, what happens to our appreciation of all the other things God has given us, right? It all but disappears in our mind. And so we don't know what Joshua is feeling, and I don't want to speculate too much. I just want to put myself in Joshua's shoes. If I was in his position, having to lead this nation, and they're not, they're not soldiers, right? They're not elite commandos. They're slaves, and this, the kids of slaves. I would be wondering, how in the world is this ever going to be done? How are we ever going to overcome this? And so he, he's looking at this army. He is by himself in enemy territory. And then the, the Hebrew says he looks up, and when he looks up, it's kind of like a surprise because he's looking at these walls, and then suddenly he sees a guy walking towards him with a drawn sword. How many of us are suddenly like, this story just took a strange turn, right? And he's going to be asked a question that's going to that, that the answer just still surprises me to this day. All right, so he's looking at these huge walls, and suddenly a man from that direction starts walking towards him with a drawn sword. And he asks the question, are you for us? Are you against us? And when Joshua least expected, and in a way he probably wouldn't have predicted, he comes face to face with God. Now, I'm going to be reading this text with the intent that this person that meets him with a drawn sword is Jesus pre-incarnate. 
because he's going to bow down and worship this being, and he's not going to be told to not do that. And so basically, all throughout the entire Old Testament, who alone is worthy of worship and being bowed down to? Right? God. God. And so this, this person is a, at the very least a representation of God, and I'm going to go that it's Jesus himself coming to talk to Joshua. And this, this being is, walks right up to him. And sometimes when we least expect it, when we're on the edge of a scary position or a new place in life, so for our senior graduates who are no longer seniors, now they're just graduates, they are on the edge of a new, new place. Some of us in here are on the edge of retirement, a new place. Some people are on the edge of moving, a new place. Some people are expecting children, new place. And it's at those times, sometimes when we least expect it, that Jesus shows up. And he shows up in ways we don't really understand or really know what to do with. All right, so here's where we come to this next one. The way of humble fear in seeking to see as God sees. So what is Joshua's question? What does he ask? Go ahead. Are you for us or are you against us? Why does that question make sense given the context? Enemy plans. This guy's coming from the area of Jericho. And here's the thing. The question and what we would expect, right? No matter what the person says, it at least gives Joshua the next thing to prepare for. If he says, I'm against you, what's Joshua going to do? Probably pull out his sword. And if he says, I'm for you, then Joshua's going to be like, good, we need some more people. But look at the answer. What does this being say to him? Neither. Now think about that for a second. The answer leaves Joshua maybe in a worse place than he began. Because now he's like, who is this guy? And now I know even less about the situation than I did before. Because here's what Joshua is being subtly or indirectly told. You're asking the wrong question. The question is not, are you for us or against us? The question really is, Joshua, are you for God? That's it. Are you with God in this equation? Are you thinking God's coming to you or are you going to him? And when he says neither, he's basically saying, Joshua, this is not the way you think it is. God is not for you and against the pagans. God is against rebellion and for his glory. And this gives us a very important key to a very difficult passage. All right, last time we took a look at uh, a difficult passage in chapter one and two. Here we're going to take a very difficult passage because here's what's going to happen. They are going to be commanded to wipe out a nation. Now, why does that not sit well for most of us? this whole concept of a holy war, right? We're in the midst of being on 9-11, the, the other side of 9-11 for 18 years now, and the idea of holy war and wiping people out in the name of God doesn't sit well with most of us. And here is our first little step to be able to work through the difficulty of Joshua fighting people. The first difficult step is this. God is not against the pagans. And we see that answer right here. He's like, I'm not against Jericho, nor am I necessarily for you. I am for my glory and I'm against rebellion and disobedience. That's what God's going to say. And so these people that we're going to take a look at are on the other side of God's wrath. So here's our problem. It seems like God is disregarding the command he's already given them in the, in the Ten Commandments. Do not steal and do not kill. The God who commands us to turn the other cheek and love our neighbor is going to tell this nation, wipe these people out. That's hard, right? Now, if you're a non-Christian, you have a whole different set of issues with that command. But if you're a Christian, that should, that should be a struggle for us. Because God has told us to love and, and lay down our lives for people. And Jesus demonstrates that. How do, we, how do we reconcile that command with wipe everyone out, man, woman, and child? 
It's a difficult, it's a difficult problem. And I hope, I hope it resonates with us as a hard thing to go through. But here's our, our first thing is the, the false solution. The false solution is to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. And some people have tried to do this, be like, well, why don't we just start over with Jesus and let like all the holy wars and all of those crazy sacrifices in the Old Testament, let's just let that be the Jewish thing and let's just start with Jesus. The problem is if we do that, we are becoming the decider of which scriptures we wanna follow or not follow. We become the ones to decide when to use violence, which commands to obey, which commands to not obey. And so as the, the picture kind of demonstrates, there's a mouse you say, better burn the house down just to be sure he's dead, right? It's to, it's to blow up the standard and revelation of God for a passage we struggle with. So here's the false solution, is to look at this and be like, that doesn't even need to be thought about. That's an Old Testament problem, let's not worry about it. I say, we need to worry about it. It's in the scriptures and it's something we need to, we need to deal with, we need to be able to think through. So here I think is a way through. The first is the uniqueness of what's going to happen in just a few minutes. All right. In this passage, um, it's important to remember that God has given the, the, the Israelites a command to do this. But back in Abraham's day, 400 years before, God also gave a warning to the Canaanites. He said, you have 400 years to get your act together, 400 years to repent, 400 years to give up your, your lost, horrible ways and surrender to the new way. They had 400 years to make a change. They chose not to. So who has the right to judge a human? God and God alone. Now, God, in this case, is choosing to use other humans for his, his outcome, and that's the struggle. But again, if we remember, if God has the right to judge a human, then he can do that any way he chooses. And in this case, he's using people. The second thing to keep in mind is God wants salvation for these people. And I think we see that in the story of Rahab, right? Perhaps these seven days of marching that are gonna come out of this passage was an opportunity for the city of Jericho to surrender. Because here's how we normally think of battles. And this is, our, this is your cue, Rick. This is how we normally think of battles. Go ahead, Nate. I give you thanks. This is our army. To join it, you give homage. I give homage to Scotland. And if this is your army, why does it go? We didn't come here to fight for them! Oh! The English are too many! Sons of Scotland! I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes. <laughs> I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight against that? No! We will run! And we will live! Alright? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. 
and dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! And that's what we expect from war, right? I, I put that in here because of Father's Day. I mean, I totally could have left it out, but it's a great battle, you know, big, great battle cry and great speech, which he probably never said, but you know, whatever, we'll go with it. Here's the thing, that's what we expect on the eve of battle. That's how we expect armies to operate. And we kind of expect Joshua to be in the William Wallace position, like cheering on his men and they're clanging their swords and clanging their shields and marching in a scary unison or something like that. That is the exact opposite of what commands, God commands them to do. I wanted to show this because this gets our blood going and gets us all excited. What if, what if William Wallace walks up and says, we're supposed to just walk quietly towards them? We'd be like, well, that's kind of anticlimactic, but that's exactly what God commands Joshua to do. In the exact opposite way of every warfare scene ever, they are to march for seven days around the city of Jericho quietly, in silence. This is God's way of of saying to the pagan cultures, there's another way. Here is what you expect, here is another way. And what if they would have opened up the gates of Jericho and let them in? I have a feeling the story would have gone very differently. Seven days of absolute silence. That's God's battle plan. Not bravery, not bravado, not shield clanking, walking silently in honor of God into battle. That is the way that God operates. Because again, is God against the pagan cultures? No. He is for his glory. And he would change them if they would allow. And he's not necessarily, and this is maybe the scarier thing, he's not necessarily for Israel. Because what happens in the future when Israel starts to adopt the, the pagan sacrifices and practices of the pagans that they just drove out of the country? God comes against them with another nation and carts them off in, into slavery. God is not treating the Israelites with partiality or special favor in one sense. He is entirely fair and entirely just. And so however we want to take a look at this very difficult passage of holy war that Joshua is going to demonstrate, it is an isolated incident, clearly coming from God, and the Israelites are to obey, but they are no better, nor are they to think of themselves as any better than the people who are lost. And I think that same command comes to us today. We are to think of ourselves as no better than anyone we come in contact with. But by the grace of God, there goes I. But by the grace of God, these Israelites become just like the culture around them. They are no fundamentally different. The only difference is God is choosing to work with these people. And he uses this very difficult thing for his glory. And so the commander of the Lord's army shows up and he starts to talk to Joshua. And now suddenly Joshua's mind is not at all worried about the size of the walls. Right? For Joshua now, he's like, what do you want me to do? Help me see as you see. Help me see as you see, God, so that I don't wreck this, so I don't make the wrong choice and I don't do the wrong thing. Because when we say things like that to our children, don't you see, what are we really trying to encourage them to do? 
to understand what we're saying so that they would do what is wise. They would do what we would want them to do. So when we were like, would you just see things my way? What we're really saying is if you could see what I could see, you would do things very differently than you currently are. And it's very difficult, right, as parents for us to have those kinds of conversations with our kids. Please do what we want you to do. But if they don't see what, they, what, what you see, they may comply, but they're not doing it for the right reasons. They're not doing it because they want to honor and obey or trust you. And this is what God is actually ultimately after. He doesn't want people to come to him because he can force them to. He wants them to obey because they want to. And so here's what Joshua says after he says, uh, after he realizes he's talking to the Lord, he falls down on the ground in reverence and says, what message does my Lord have for, my, for his servant? Basically, whatever you want, I'm in. I'm in complete obedience before I even know what the command is. Because when he comes to recognize who is God, he's not afraid to go with whatever God would have him to go. So I want you to think for a second. You can write it down or just think about it uh, in your life. A situation when you didn't see something that seems pretty obvious to you now that would have made a big difference then. Can you think of a time in your life where that was true? Now, what if God is seeking to communicate to us things that he sees? And do we have the ability to trust that what he sees is true? If we can do this in our own lives, think back to a time when you were seven and you thought you knew what was best, or a time when you were 18 and thought you knew what was best. If you could go back and have conversations with yourself, would there be things you'd want to say to yourself in the past? Because you see things differently now than you did then. Now, what if God sees all things? Can we trust that what he sees is best? And Joshua has come to the place of saying, whatever you say is best, I'm in. What is your command? Your servant is here listening and ready to go, whatever it is. And we're going to find out the command is walk around the city seven times quietly. That's going to be the command. It's not exactly what we would expect. So he is now no longer concerned about the size of the walls or the army or anything like that. He's, he's concerned with what does God want from me? And he's going to obey wholeheartedly. And this leads us to our second to last point, the way of humble courage. Joshua is going to follow an invisible leader. This is the only time Jesus manifests himself in physical form to Joshua, this entire story. There's going to be literally probably 14 more years of battles to come. This is the first of 14 years of fighting. And as far as we know, this angel Jesus person never shows up again in physical form. But is he present the rest of the story? Absolutely. And Joshua knows he is. So he's going to follow his invisible leader. And this gives him courage. This gives him courage because notice the words. I am your servant. I am no longer thinking of myself as the general, the captain of my own life, the determiner of my own fate. I am in submission to whatever you say. I am your servant. Because from now on, it's not up to Joshua what the outcome is. And I love that. How cool is that? To know that the, the consequences of the battles is not on him anymore. It's not about him finding a way into the walls or coming up with the best plan. It's trusting that what God says is going to work and then he just follows through. And if, if this battle goes south, it's not on him because he is given the responsibility of this outcome to God to say, whatever you want, I will do. Now, here's how this kind of works. I've used this illustration. I don't know if I've used it in church. If I have, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, Joshua's storyline, this book is named after Joshua, but it's really not about him at all. It's really about God using Joshua. And Joshua surrenders himself over. And I use this picture of uh, luggage. If you go to the airport and you take your luggage to the, 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 the ticket checker person, they will, they will take your luggage and they will give you a little receipt thing. 
And then here's the idea. They are saying, without necessarily saying this, we as an airline are taking full responsibility of all of your stuff. And you say thank you and you take your ticket. And then here's what they guarantee. When you land in Romania or Florida or wherever, your luggage will be there waiting for you. But let's say, this would never happen, of course, but let's just say you land at the airport, you go to the, the carousel, you wait for the four hours or however long it is for your luggage to show up, and it doesn't show up. What's, what's your next step? You take your little ticket and you go where? To the tag people. And you march over there because you're, you're tired and you know, you've been on the flight for seven hours and you've been waiting for your luggage and you realize it's going to be a lot longer of a day than you expect. And you slap your ticket down and you say, my luggage isn't here. And they will look at you and they will say, we are so sorry. We will work on it right away. They'll give you an essentials kit. If you're familiar with Brian Regan, you can watch that. It's funny. The essentials kit. And then, and then you wait. And then they go to their computer and they figure out where your luggage is. And then they eventually get it to you. And they have a huge amount of apologies because they took responsibility for your luggage and they wrecked it. But what if the story goes this way? You walk up to the ticket checker and you're like, no way, Jose. I do not trust you. I'm keeping my own bag. And so you do. And so you walk to the bathroom and you're using the facilities or whatever. You leave your luggage sitting out because you don't listen to the constant announcements over the airport. You're never to leave your luggage unattended, but you do. You come out of the bathroom and your luggage is gone. And so you march over to the ticket check person. You're like, my luggage is gone. And they're like, oh, we're so sorry. Can we see your ticket? And you're like, well, I didn't trust it to you. And they would look at you and they would say, well, what do you want us to do now? You're like, I want you to find my luggage. It's been stolen. And they would say, that, that's not our responsibility. You never entrusted it to us in the first place. Now here, coming back to Father's Day and why there's a picture of a kid in some luggage, can we trust that the way that God calls us to love and sacrifice for our children and to discipline our children is the way? It is hard. I have an eight-and-a-half-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old. And I, I hear it gets much easier from here on in, right? It's just... Downhill and smooth sailing after you get them through. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I, I know better. <laughs> Everyone's shaking. They're like, no, it gets worse. No. Here's the thing. Can we trust that what God says is the way? Joshua is saying this. I entrust my life and these people's lives to you. And God says, and I will take responsibility for the outcome. Now, here's the problem. If we hold back and we're like, no, God, I know this is what you want me to do. I feel it in my heart and I see it in your word, but I don't trust that approach. We are taking our own luggage into our own hands. And when things go south, we yell at God for it, don't we, sometimes? We're like, God, why didn't you? And maybe the answer would be, if we thought about it long enough, you never entrusted me fully with your life. And Joshua is going to put everything on the line, right? There's none of us denying the fact that he's putting everything on the line here. There is no retreat. It's moving forward God's way or no way at all. Now, what's obvious for Joshua in the middle of a battle becomes a little less obvious for us in 21st century America. But it is no less true. We are commanded to be free to give God everything. And then he says, and I will take responsibility for everything. Can we trust him in that? And Joshua does. And he's now free. He's free to do whatever God says because he now knows what God wants. Number two, the next amazing thing is the commander of the Lord's army says, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, where is this holy ground? It is in pagan territory right in front of Jericho. You know, for all we know, human sacrifices could have been taking place in the very place that Joshua is standing. So what makes this place holy ground? The presence of who? God. Isn't that amazing? 
There is no place so dark or so scary that God can't come and make holy for us. And we have the picture of like just up there of Jesus being born in a manger, right? Holiness is not a location. Holiness is wherever God chooses to meet his people. That means in your dark places, it becomes holy if God is there. That means there is no child so far gone that God can't bring them back. There's no financial situation that is so dark that he can't redeem it. There is no fear that goes so deep that he can't give peace. Because holiness and the presence of God changes it, and it does not matter the location. So Joshua is told, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground, just like Moses was told to do in the middle of a desert where there was no one around. And in this quiet moment when no one is around, this is where the spiritual battle is going to be laid. And this is where like sun standing still and walls falling, all of that is going to come out of this moment when Joshua recognizes that he's in the presence of God and he can fully obey. And it doesn't matter where he goes, that this, this command that I will be with you, that he got back in chapter one, he now knows it's going to be absolutely true. And so it's not going to rest on his power or his might. He's going to know now the spiritual reality that this invisible general is going with him into war. And it's going to be the consistent theme of scripture. We don't see him very often. He sometimes goes decades and even centuries without physically showing himself. But it doesn't make him any less present just because we can't see him with our eyes. So Joshua is going to lead these people around a city. And it's not going to be because of his warriors that they're going to have victory. It's because of who they walk with that they're going to have victory. And so God's heart for these people is to save them, to draw them to himself. Because after seven days, what is going to ultimately happen to the city? The walls are going to crumble and they are going to fall. And so here's just a, a warning for us. The number seven is the number of perfection. And these, these pagan people living in Jericho had seven days to repent, seven days to surrender, and they chose not to. And we can have the temptation to guard our hearts behind the walls of our pride and not let God have access to things because of fear or because of pride or whatever. I just want us to be aware. God's patience does have a time frame. He will come. He will judge. Now, for some of us, maybe we, we are pretty quick to open those doors. We're like, God, I don't want to fight you on this anymore. Here you go. But others of us, we're like, we're getting those, those walls built up as high as we can. I just want you to know the people of, of Jericho had an opportunity to surrender. But when those walls came down, they came down suddenly and without warning. There was no warning for them. And Jesus will go on to say the same kinds of warnings in different parables, right? You do not know when your life will be demanded of you. What are you doing in the midst of that? Is that a reality for us? That our lives are not forever and that the walls of our lives could come tumbling down in an instant. And they did for Jericho as a warning. And again, it's not that God is against the people of Jericho. He is against rebellion and disobedience. And he's for his glory and honor. And that is what's going gonna to happen here. Our last point. We build more than we see when we humble ourselves. We build more than we see. Joshua is not going to be marching around these city walls in vain. He may not know exactly what's going to come. He's told, wake up and do this. Wake up and do this. Wake up and do the same thing you did yesterday. And do it again and do it again. And that is like maybe the difficulty for some of us, right? Is we are told, wake up and do the same thing today you did yesterday. And we're like, why? And he's like, you don't, don't worry about the why. Just trust me. Walk. And so for seven days they do this. Every day they march around these walls. And we're going to see that eventually, the last day, they are going to have their spears. They are going to have their shields. They're going to march. They're going to, they're going to cry out in a loud voice. And the walls are going to come tumbling down. And this city is going to be conquered by spear and sword. 
by the power of God, right? Not by their abilities. But I want you just to to, to, uh, check here for a second. Paul tells us in Romans that we are more than conquerors. First thought about what that means? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? And I think here's the idea. Joshua was a conqueror. He was able to overcome a city that was vastly superior to his army because of God's grace. He conquered it. But Jesus does more than conquer, doesn't he? Because here's the beauty of what Jesus demonstrates. He doesn't march around the city of Jerusalem with a spear, does he? He marches through Jerusalem carrying a cross to a hill. And instead of using a spear to impale his enemies, what is that spear going to be done? It's going to impale him. And out of love, a city is going to be conquered. Not with a sword, not with a shield, and not with a spear. But by sacrifice and love. And in that point, to be more than a conqueror means this. Instead of being overcome by an enemy, or even even overcoming an enemy, it's to take the very thing that would seem to destroy us and actually have that thing become a symbol of grace and goodness. The cross, the symbol of shame and guilt and horror of of the old time of Rome, has now become a picture of grace and love. How did that happen? Because Jesus became more than a conqueror. He didn't just win. He used the very instrument of his death to demonstrate something huge that would change the world. And when Paul says in Romans 8 that we get to be more than conquerors, that means the evil things in your life that would seem to destroy you, God wants to take those things and actually use it for a good end. Not just that you win or overcome evil, but that the very thing that seems to overcome you would be elevated and would actually be used to bring God even more glory. That's the beauty. That's the, that's the finished picture. Joshua is trusting in God's salvation in the future. He's operating on credit, that God is going to credit him righteous at some point. We, on the other side of the cross, are looking back to the same event, and now it's debit for us. It's already done. The grace and the love and the mercy is in a bank account, and we have access to it, which means we don't have to operate the way the world does. We can trust the Savior's way and to trust that he will guide us and overcome the the evil on our behalf. So this humility of Joshua to trust that what God is going to do is going gonna, is gonna to save him. And so he's going to build a legacy. And isn't that what fatherhood is about? Building into a legacy of something we're going to see and then building into something we will never see. The cool thing is, hopefully for most of us to think through, is that we don't know exactly what's going to become of our children, but hopefully they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids and they're going to have kids. And that legacy of the day-to-day moments we have with them is going to go on into eternity in ways we can't ever imagine seeing. That's the beauty of what God's offering to do in our lives. Because in Joshua's day, there was a nation that learned to trust for one generation. And then that nation lost that ability and became a bunch of rebels. But what was God faithfully doing through it all? Holding them and moving them. And at the end, out of this same nation comes the savior of the world. Joshua's building into something that he couldn't imagine. Is it any less true for us? Can we remember that we're building into something that we can't even imagine? I want, <clears throat> sorry, I want us to do something a little different. Uh, if you have your child nearby, this will be slightly awkward, but I want you to do this. If your child is not nearby, or if you don't have kids, I want you to take out your phone in church. Some of you have already been doing this. I want you to find a picture of someone you love and have a close relationship with. All right, so this is, again, slightly different. I want you to take out your phone or awkwardly look at your children, especially if they're far away. You can just stare into their eyes. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a little weird. So I want you to look into their eyes, and here's what I want you just to consciously think about. Or if you have your phone and you're looking at someone you love, if it's 
your child, I want you to think about this. That person you're looking at is eternal. They are never going to end. Now here's why we, at least, okay, so I'll just confess my own issue, right? Sometimes we get so caught up in the moment we forget to actually look at our kids, or in my case, my wife sometimes. Like we just like live side by side with our kids. Do we think about the fact that they are going to live on forever and that we have moments with them that actually matter? I think, I, at least I forget this. So just for 30 seconds, awkwardly stare into the eyes. <laughs> of your child or the phone or the picture of whoever you value, the person that you love. For 30 seconds, I know, it's awkward and weird. I want you to try it for 30 seconds. This might be the most uncomfortable our church has ever been. Oh, do you? Five seconds to go. <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. We are praying for something bigger than just walls falling down like Joshua's praying for, right? We're praying for wills to fall. We're praying for more than just enemies to be conquered. We're praying for our children to submit to the Lord. We are, more, we, are, we are doing something more than following our general God with a sword, right? We're following a Savior who carried a cross. That is the gospel message for us, that he will overcome, not by sword, but by the Spirit of God. And that is what we have access to inside, if you know Christ. It is more than just parenting tips. It's walking with the Lord and remembering that what he says about the people we live with is true that they are eternal beings made in the image of God that matter. Matter so much that he was willing to die for them. And I know all of us parents would say we're willing to die for our children, and I don't think that's a hesitation for most of us. But are we willing to die to ourselves every day for them? That's a much harder battle, at least for me, to die every day for them. So as we end, as we end this point, to those people who have summited Mount Everest, there's a tradition that you leave some object at the top of Mount Everest. And at this point, there's only 4,000 people or so who've made it to the top. And you leave something there. The crazy thing is, there's always people following the people going up. And here's the, the neat end of the story. Hillary and his Sherpa guide, his name was Tenzing. Hillary's son summited Mount Everest, following in his dad's footsteps. And two of Tenzing's sons, the Sherpa guide, also summited Mount Everest, following in their dad's footsteps. We don't know who's following us, nor do we know where they're gonna go. The question is, are we walking in a direction that's worthy, knowing that there's, there's people following us that, that we may not even recognize or see? And the last, the last point, the, the item that Hillary left at the top of Mount Everest, and we wanna take a guess, the, the, the supreme example of humility? A cross. Hillary left a cross when he summited Mount Everest. And as far as we know, that cross is still at the top of Everest to this day. Now here's the thing, we are walking through our lives. We have this day to walk through. We have this week to walk through. Lord willing, we have a year to walk through. We have our whole lives. We don't know how tall the mountain is that God's calling us to, to hike. We take a step at a time, but here's the thing, at the top of that mountain when nobody's around, what are we gonna be leaving at the top of our lives when, it's, when it all comes to an end? Are we leaving a symbol of the cross in the people we meet up with? Or are we leaving something less? Hillary, a very humble man, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, 
left a cross. And my hope and challenge for, our, for us men who are fathers, and for all of us, is in the lives of the people we are building into, are we leaving something eternal, and is it built on humility? If it is, then we know that this lasts into eternity. And if it isn't, according to Paul in, second, in 1 Corinthians, it's going to burn up and be gone, and there'll be nothing to show for it. Let's not build with anything less than humility and trust in, in, in the God who saves, in the God who carries a cross for us, in our Father who is willing to give up his one and only Son that we may live. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, there's so much more going on around us than we ever could imagine. And in some ways, Lord, I thank you that you don't always show us the magnitude of every single decision we make. I think that would become overwhelming. But we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us without a guide. You do not leave us without your Holy Spirit. You don't leave us without the testimony of Christ and the written word. Help us, Lord, to use these things, to take steps, to invest in people, to guard our words and to guard our hearts, to be able to instruct and teach the children you've placed in our care, whether they are our own children or those around us, and the people in our lives, uh, in such a way, Lord, that you would be glorified and honored. Lord, we know ultimately we're going to stand before you and only you. Help us, Lord, to remember that and to love those around us because we ultimately love you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to Joshua and the examples that he sets. And may we continue to walk in faithfulness uh, just as he did. And it's in your son's most precious name that we pray. Amen.